Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And just a quick note before today's episode, uh, but at the end of last month, I had the pleasure of attending the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research's annual meeting in Seattle, Washington. It was a great time, and I had a chance to talk with some great researchers about life and physical systems in low-gravity and no-gravity environments. The meeting was a lot of fun, and we actually wound up with so much great audio that the challenge is really winnowing it down into a single episode. Uh, but keep an eye out. That is coming soon. And moving on to today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Dan gibson Reinemer, who's a fish biologist with the Illinois Natural History Survey. Uh, we talked about the effects of regulation on an unhealthy river system that later became a healthier river system. It was the Illinois Waterway, and it's rebounded significantly since hitting a low point before the passage of the Clean Water Act. I'll let Dr. gibson Reinemer tell the story though. So let's get straight to the interview. Uh, Dr. gibson Reinemer, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so in this case, we're talking about an article that begins a lot earlier than a lot of the things we discuss on this show. Um, so I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the Illinois Waterway when we first started getting data about it, you know, fish abundance and that sort of thing. When was that? Yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. It's fortuitous because uh, Stephen Forbes, who was a very pioneering ecologist in America, uh, set up shops on, on the bank, uh, uh, the banks of the Illinois River, um, near where my current field station is in Havana, Illinois. Uh, and that happened in the late 1800s. So he was there because he wanted to study uh, what made the Illinois River so productive in terms of the, the waterfowl that were there and in terms of the, uh, the fish that were there. Um, and so he, he picked a really good spot to, to study the Illinois River. And we have uh, really outstanding data uh, for the late 1800s who came, that came from this uh, outstanding scientist who was there taking all of these measurements. So it's a very unique uh, situation in that regard. Okay. And so at that early time, you know, at the end of the century, what was the uh, Illinois River like? So that's a good question. Um, it was the, the historic Illinois River um, at this at the location where uh, Forbes had set up uh, shops uh, on the lower Illinois River. Uh, it's a river that was, it had the valley carved by uh, an ancestral river, sort of a precursor to the uh, Mississippi, if you will. So a very large river was flowing uh, through there uh, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, and then glaciation changed where the Mississippi went. So you have a, a substantially smaller river uh, in the lower part of the Illinois River flowing through this great valley. And, and that was one of the keys to understanding why it was so productive, because it has this very expansive valley. Uh, when it floods, it, it floods, and uh, it can be very prolonged in terms of how much flooding uh, that happens. And the Mississippi River itself, when it floods, it can back up uh, the Illinois River, you know, 200 kilometers or so, or at least it could uh, before there were any navigational structures on there. And that really explains a lot of why it was uh, so productive, because it had this prolonged uh, flooding and it had this great floodplain with a lot of resources. And you get to see those connections between the river and the, these riparian areas. And I guess I should interrupt us for a moment and just mention that uh, we're talking about the Illinois Waterway. So it's a system of rivers. We're not simply talking about the Illinois River. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, and when I say the Illinois Waterway, I refer to the, uh, the Illinois River itself. And then also the Des Plaines River, which flows up. Uh, it's, it's one of two rivers that join um, relatively close to Chicago to form the Illinois River itself. Okay, so we have this early data collection uh, around 1900. And you know, what kind of things is it showing us in terms of fish abundance? Well, Forbes is really, I think, initially interested in just figuring out the, the straight science of, of what was happening and how it was, was so productive. 
but then uh, the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal opened in 1900. And we had this uh, scientist who was very far-sighted, who was uh, very well aware that as uh, this canal you know, was being built and as it was getting ready to send untreated sewage down uh, into the river, that this was another big effect on the river. And he wanted to be able to, to be there and to monitor these changes that happened right away. So uh, you've got his early measurements uh, and, and some of his colleagues as well. And you also have some data that we used from uh, commercial uh, fishermen at the time, because there was uh, a highly valuable commercial fishery uh, in the Illinois River in the early part of the uh, 1900s. And uh, you mentioned the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. Uh, when, when that was implemented, what kind of effects did that have on the abundance of fish and the health of the river? Yeah, so it had uh, two effects, really, depending on where you were in the river. Um, so the closer you were to where the canal entered the river and up towards the Des Plaines River, now, one of the most immediate effects was it, it, it there's lots of uh, you know industrial wastewater and untreated sewage entering the river, and so that's a, a ton of nutrients, lots of nutrients overloading the system, and as those decompose, uh, it decreases the oxygen sometimes to to levels that were near zero, and we know that because people like Forbes are out there actually measuring that um, during the summer months when oxygen is typically at its lowest levels in these rivers. There were places uh, you know for miles and miles downstream where there was essentially no oxygen in the water. And so that just had a devastating effect on anything in the river that required oxygen that couldn't uh, breathe air. And so we know that that had a, an effect that progressed downstream, you know, further and further each year. But at the same time, um, we suspect that it had sort of a fertilizing effect if you went uh, very far downstream, so towards the, the lower Illinois River, because there were some nutrients in there and some, uh, some extra water that was flowing through there. And that might have had a, a bit of a fertilizing effect downstream, whereas upstream, uh, it had a, a very negative effect. And what sort of effects were they seeing on fish? You know, obviously, you've mentioned these low oxygen hypoxic events. Um, not good, I would assume. Yes, uh, they were out there, uh, Forbes and some of his colleagues, you know, in the first few years after the canal opened, and it, it was basically devoid of, of a lot of aquatic life, uh, not just fish. Um, and then in terms of the, the reliable data that we have, there's a bit of a gap until the um, electrofishing um, or, or the sampling of the river, the standardized monitoring that we discussed in the paper, began in the late 1950s. And, and when that happened, uh, there were some fish up there in the upper part of the river, but uh, virtually all of them were uh, invasive species, uh, particularly two, uh, common carp and, and goldfish. And even the ones that were there, um, the carp and the goldfish that could survive, were in really poor condition. Uh, they had lesions, um, they had problems with their eyes, Sometimes their eyes were literally falling out of their, their sockets. They were fish that were not in good quality whatsoever. And uh, that dissipated, you know, the farther downstream you got. But uh, even so, uh, a lot of the, the populations of fish throughout the river weren't where they were, um, you know, a century or, or several decades before, right around the turn of the century when there was a, a highly productive uh, commercial fishery in that river. And just out of curiosity, those invasive species, were those introduced on purpose or was that, you know, just uh, people releasing pets or, or what kind of thing happened there? Or do we know? Well, we do know in terms of the uh, common carp that was introduced uh, intentionally. Uh, you used to be able to, uh, you could literally write to Congress and request to get some uh, some fish eggs you could stock or some, some marble fish. Uh, and common carp was one of the species that you could, you could stock and it was encouraged because uh, at the time, 
uh, people enjoyed it. They enjoyed eating it. Uh, that is, it's a, it's a popular sport fish in Europe uh, to this day. Uh, our taste had changed, but it was initially stocked and it was harvested commercially. Um, and in fact, in the early part of the 20th century, it, it quickly, it, it was uh, introduced and it quickly became uh, both the most harvested, the most valuable uh, commercial fish in the Illinois River. Okay, so the situation that we have in the in the late fifties, I believe you said, uh, is we have the canal and the attendant pollution with that, and we have the introduction of um, you know two large invasive species that have uh, had further you know negative effects on the river system's health. Uh, are there any other things that are causing problems in the river system? Sure. So the river's changing in some other important ways as well. Uh, a lot of the uh, river is being uh, levied, so they're essentially channelizing the river, making it straighter, uh, blocking off the access to the floodplain, um, and that's to provide uh, better and more reliable farmland in the area around it and to, to control floods. Uh, so that's happening, and that's an important change because it's uh, severing the link between the, the river and the floodplain that existed historically. Uh, not, not totally and not everywhere. It's, it's a, a change that's happening throughout the river, and it's, a, it's an important one that really helps uh, explain a lot of the changes that are going on in the river itself. Um, there's also some sedimentation that's occurring as uh, primarily as water, uh, you know, where humans, wherever humans settle, uh, the soil tends to run off a little bit and go into the river. As that happens, uh, some of these backwaters uh, or the nursery areas for a lot of fish start to fill in and get shallower and shallower because the, uh, essentially the topsoil is, is washing into the rivers and then settling in these areas. Okay, so we've got geological perturbation in addition to invasive species and pollution. Uh, is this the low point for the river? Yeah, in many ways, I, I think uh, that first half of the, the 20th century or so probably was uh, a real low point. I certainly hope it was. In terms of the, the, the data that we were taking a look at here, you know, it's hard to get much worse than that. You know, we took a look at um, what we called sport fish, or uh, that's a, a useful category because it combines uh, fish that uh, a lot of anglers target, and they're also the, the typically the large predators in these systems. And when we started uh, taking a look at the, at the data from the standardized sampling in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, upper, in the upper parts of the river, there were virtually none of those fish there. So you have a river that's essentially devoid of large predators. Uh, the number of species there, species richness is pretty low, and the diversity of species is also quite low. So you know, for having uh, a river that had fish in it, it was almost as bad as you could get. Okay, and so I think this low point may be familiar to many listeners of the podcast, uh, but this is a story with a happier ending, or at least a happier next chapter. Um, so what happens next? Sure. So, uh, and I, I do want to clarify one thing. Uh, when I spoke about the fact that the river was at a real low point, um, and there were you know, virtually no large predators in there, I'm, um, I should have clarified that I meant only the, the upper parts of the river, so the areas closest to the canal. Uh, farther downstream, as you get closer to St. Louis and towards the Mississippi, uh, there was always a, a population, um, you know, decent populations of, of sport fish and larger predators in there. Uh, but they had, were at much lower levels uh, even there than they had been before. So uh, the entire river uh, was, was being affected. It was certainly more severe in the upper river than it was in the lower river. But what we see is that after the passage of the, uh, the Clean Water Act in 1972, that throughout the river, uh, not just in the upper river, but in the lower river as well, important metrics uh, begin to improve. So the number of species there, species richness, that begins to improve. Species diversity improves, you know, how, how many species there are and how evenly distributed fishes are among those different species. And then the number of uh, sport fish or, or larger predators, all of those go up. And most strikingly, in the areas that were most affected, uh, closer to Chicago, these populations of sport fish uh, just 
came back exponentially. It was an enormous uh, rebound. And, and today, up in some of those areas, um, in the upper Illinois River and the Des Plaines River, uh, the catches of those sport fish uh, right now and the monitoring that continues to this day uh, are, are really high. I mean, the highest that we've seen since we began the monitoring. Um, and these are you know, fish in, in pretty good shape, too. Um, so it was really a, a roaring comeback that these fish made. And, you know, how did how did the Clean Water Act um, cause that to happen? You know, I, I think, you know, we, we're all familiar with the, the, the notion that it's passed and that it has certain regulations. But, you know, kind of what are the regulations um, that make it most possible for those species to rebound and water quality to improve? So in, in this case, we had a really fortuitous opportunity. Uh, up closer to Chicago, um, they were they had to begin um, doing a, a better job of, of treating the water and in the Illinois River. And to do that, they implemented uh, the tunnel and reservoir plan. Um, and that, that was initiated after uh, the Clean Water Act was passed. It took a while for that to actually come online. Uh, it was a, a fairly huge uh, undertaking in terms of the, the engineering uh, that went into it. Um, and it didn't, uh, the first um, part of that became active in about 1983. And at that time, uh, we have some really good water quality data it's from the Chicago, um, basically from the Metropolitan Water District up there. And so uh, what one of my uh, co-authors uh, was able to do was to take a look at water quality parameters that were improving as these water treatment systems uh, came online and how the fish assemblage was changing uh, at the same time. So we were able to pair changing water quality with changing fish assemblages and figure out what was really happening there, what was driving uh, the improvement in these fish populations. And the most important things... Um, that they found in that part of the study was that um, fish improvements were really tightly linked with uh, decreasing ammonia in the water and increasing water clarity and increasing oxygen levels in the water. Okay, so we have evidence then that, you know, if we if we can improve certain water quality metrics, we can then perhaps expect uh, species that have been negatively affected by pollutants to rebound. That's right. And I think that, that generally makes sense. I think a lot of people would expect that. They'd expect that water quality would improve and they'd, ex- they'd expect that uh, fish would improve um, as uh, as a result of that. But it was surprising even for me how quickly uh, and how well uh, they responded. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked as a fish biologist with uh, across several different states, and you almost never see changes that are this positive uh, occurring in, in these natural systems. Um, so this is a pretty overwhelming uh, positive change, and it is quite surprising for me, frankly. So... Uh, I want to, you know, talk more about that. Before we do, I was hoping we could touch just a little bit on some of the sampling methods that are used. You mentioned, you know, one of the the data sources that you have uh, involves electrofishing, and I was hoping you could just uh, tell us a little bit about that program and kind of how that works. Sure. Yeah. So uh, electrofishing involves uh, running an electric current through the water, and that works um, <clears throat> by stunning the fish. And when the fish get stunned, uh, they typically roll over. You see the whites of their bellies, and we can capture them uh, pretty easily. And so the way this program worked. Um, is we had a, a boat, and we have the, the specifications and the designs of these boats uh, have stayed exactly the same throughout the course of the study. And in terms of the effort that we put in, we standardized you know, how many minutes we sample at each uh, location. And so it's a boat, and it's got these um, uh, metal probes that hang out the front, and this uh, basically distributes electricity throughout the water. Someone stands up um, on the bow of the boat, and that's these fish as they're stunned, uh, they're kept in a, in a live well because it doesn't kill them. It just stuns them. So they're kept in a live well on the boat. We measure them. We weigh them. Um, we get all kinds of information about them. And then we return them to the water. And what's 
so uh, helpful in this regard is that the, the exact same protocols have been followed consistently uh, throughout the course of that study. And so we have a very direct way of comparing what was in the river in the 1950s and 1960s and, and what's there now, because you've been doing things exactly the same for so long. It's a very highly standardized program. It was pretty unique in terms of uh, being initiated so early. Uh, a lot of these long-term ecological monitoring programs uh, haven't been around uh, quite as long. Uh, so this is, it's not uh, completely unique, but it's, it's rare to have uh, this type of opportunity. And it makes a really great way to measure something because you have data um, in the 1950s and 1960s before these water quality improvements happen. And you can compare the fish before and after using the exact same method. So it's a very powerful way to analyze changes in the river. Yeah, and it seems like you know that your work here really points to the value of having longer-term data sets and programs that are carried out over a long period of time. Absolutely, uh, this is you know really a you know a, a dream come true for a fish biologist to be able to have this kind of data to to look at because it almost never happens, um, and not just for fish biologists, for other people as well. It's it's very rare, no matter what organism you study, to have this kind of standardized data that goes back so long. It's and it so it's. It's great because it goes back so long, it's so standardized, and it also covers essentially the entire uh, Illinois River and then part of the Des Plaines River as well. Okay, so you know what's next for the Illinois Waterway now? Um, I assume you're, you know, you're, it's still being monitored uh, by similar means. Are there threats still being faced? Uh, what's on the horizon? Sure. So it, it does have, uh, as far as it's come, it has some other threats that are challenging and, and troubling. Um, many people might be familiar with the, the Asian carp or the, the big-headed carps. The, there's two species, uh, silver carp and, and big-headed carp, that have invaded the lower portion of the Illinois River. Uh, they're in the, the, pardon me, the Mississippi River as well. And so these are large, fast-growing fish, uh, and they're not present in the uppermost parts of the Illinois River right now, and we're trying to you know, keep them from uh, getting in there, especially because this canal uh, that I mentioned connects the Illinois River to the Great Lakes. So we want to keep those fish out of the Great Lakes. Um, it's because they uh, take uh, food resources, so zooplankton and phytoplankton, out of the river. They're very efficient at filtering this. Uh, they get a lot of the food resources in the river, uh, and they, they grow very quickly. So uh, an enormous amount of biomass uh, in the lower part of the Illinois River right now uh, is in the form of, of these invasive carp species. Um, so that's certainly a, a concern. Um, and you know, it's, <clears throat> it's also concerning because we've seen this great comeback in a lot of the fish in the river. And what we're concerned about is that these new invasive carp species are going to reverse that, that they're going to lead to decreases in both the, the quantity and the quantity of, of native fish and, and native sport fish in the river. Well, and just out of curiosity, what happened to the, the previously invasive species of carp that were in the river? That's a, a great question. Uh, and they've declined. Uh, so common carp and goldfish have declined dramatically um, in some of the most impacted areas, it's, it's a complete reversal. You know, we're in the 50s and 60s, 97% of the, spe of the species caught were common carp, uh, or pardon me, 97% of the individuals that were caught were common carp, and, and now uh, only about 2% of the catch up there is common carp. So they've undergone almost a complete reversal. We don't know exactly what's uh, been going on. There's probably been several factors that have contributed to that. One intriguing possibility is that a uh, cyprinid herpes virus, uh, something that only affects common carp, uh, might be present in the river, and that might be uh, causing a lot of these declines in the common carp populations. Um, you know, we'd, we'd really like to have some histological samples. We could go back and compare um, over time, but we we just don't have those. So, um, precisely what's caused those uh, common carp to decline is 
it's not quite known, but for whatever reason, they, they've, uh, they haven't disappeared. They're still there, uh, but they're at much lower levels than they were historically. And, that, and that's another success that's happened. Yeah, so regardless of the cause, it's certainly fortuitous. So what's next for your research? Are, are you continuing with this project or are you studying other areas? Uh, you know, I, I still uh, continue to, to do some work here. Uh, some of my colleagues uh, in particular are looking at uh, endocrine disruptors in the river, um, particularly close to large metropolitan areas. Uh, there's a lot of uh, synthetic hormones that are in the water. Uh, they don't typically don't get treated um, when uh, they go through a water treatment facility. Uh, and these can lead to skewed sex ratios, you know, things like male fish producing eggs. It's a pretty troubling effects uh, there. Uh, so there, that's one of the ongoing challenges that some of my colleagues here are looking into. Um, we're also taking a look at how uh, fish in the Illinois River and then also parts of the Mississippi River are, are changing uh, from these, these uh, carp, how uh, this new wave of invasive species is affecting ecological interactions and things like that. And great. We'll be on the lookout for that research. Uh, Dr. Gibson Reinemer, thank you very much for joining me today. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.